Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Bridgepoint Church. Stay tuned after the podcast for a short message, but for now, let's jump right in. How's everybody feeling after fall break? Oh, don't act like you're happy to be back from fall break. We all wish we were still on the beach. And I don't know about you, after fall break, I always, my clothes fit a little bit tighter. So I guess in one way, it's good to get back in the routine of things. I'm excited this morning to continue on in this series where we've just been walking through the book of Mark. And and I've really come to love Mark because his audience looks a lot like you and me. Now, there's four gospel accounts in Scripture, and the other three are written so that people who don't believe in Jesus would put their faith in him. But Mark is writing to people who are already Christians to kind of reintroduce them to Jesus. Because sometimes we can become so familiar with something that we almost become unfamiliar with it. And we all have different backgrounds and lenses that kind of shape the way we see everything, including Jesus. I'm reminded of that dad joke about the young couple who moves into a new house, and so they get their coffee on the first morning, and they sit in the kitchen, and they're looking out the window, and the husband sees that one of their neighbors is hanging clothes out to dry on the clothesline. So I don't know if this is 1940, but but she's out there, and she's hanging them up, and he's looking, and he says, man, those are the dirtiest clothes I've ever seen. I mean, there's spots all over them. They look disgusting. And he turns to his wife and said, you need to go over there and teach her how to walk wash her clothes. So the next morning they wake up and he looks out again. The, the clothes are disgusting. Honey, you need to go over there. You need to teach her how to watch her, wash her clothes. This goes on for a week. Finally, one morning, guy gets his coffee, comes in, sits down. He looks out. The, the clothes are, are beautiful. He's never seen clothes this clean before. There's not a spot on them. And he turns to his wife and said, did you go over and teach her how to wash clothes? And she said, no, I washed our windows. Some of you will get that a little later. I didn't say it was a good joke, okay? I said it was a dad joke. But the idea is that we all have these lenses that kind of color the way we perceive things. Some of us have lenses based on how we grew up. Maybe you have a middle-class lens, or maybe you have a low-income lens. Maybe you have a lens based on your ethnic background or your political leanings, but we all have different lenses that color the way we view everything, including Jesus. And Mark knows this, and so what Mark wants to do is to present Jesus in a way where we wash the windows in our hearts, where we can see Jesus for who he really is. Because everybody has a lens, even Jesus' own disciples had lenses that shaped the way they saw Jesus. Because they were real people. They were Jewish men living in the first century. And so they had grown up hearing the Jewish scriptures tell the story of how God created the world to be this place where heaven and earth were together, where God could be with his people. He would walk with them and talk with them. But because of of both human and cosmic rebellion, heaven and earth kind of rip apart. And now this world is a place that's infected with sin and death. And you don't have to be a theologian to look around and realize the world is a broken place. But God didn't give up on earth. In fact, he still has a plan to bring heaven to earth. And in the Old Testament, he wants to do that through his nation, through, through his kingdom. And he does that through his people, the, the Israelites. So he rescues them out of slavery, and he establishes them as this mighty nation. They have great land. They have all these resources. He blesses them abundantly so they could be his kingdom here on earth. They could show the world what it looks like to live the way God intended for them to live. 
But over time, they kind of got comfortable. Because when you have more money than you could ever need, and you have more food than you could ever eat, and you have all the security in the world, they didn't need to depend on God quite as much. And so over time, they started to worship other gods, the deities of other nations. For hundreds of years, God pleaded with his people to turn back. But eventually he said, listen, if you don't want a relationship with me, I'm not going to force myself on you. So God removes his protection, and then God's kingdom is defeated, first by the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks. And by the time Jesus shows up, it's now the Romans who are ruling over God's kingdom. So the end of the Jewish scriptures kind of end with people asking this question. Did we mess up so much that God's given up? Is there no hope that his kingdom will ever come back to earth? But the prophets promised that one day God would bring his kingdom back to earth, and he would bring it by sending a Messiah, a Savior, who would establish God's kingdom. Now, Mark chapter 1 begins with Jesus proclaiming the good news that he is king, and he's come to establish his kingdom. And he confirms this by performing different miracles, and he's healing people and casting out unclean spirits. But not only does he do this, but he enlists people to help him in this journey. Uh, look at Mark chapter 3, verse 13. It says, Jesus went up the mountain and summoned those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, to be with him, to send them out to preach, and to have authority to drive out demons. This is very important here. We talked about this a few weeks ago. See, today we're going to be in Mark chapter 8, and it's the, the crucial turning point in the entire book of Mark. But I've got to recap some of the stuff we've talked about, because I don't know about you, but I don't even remember everything I've talked about in this series. So we've got to hit some of the high points to get us caught up. See, here it's not only Jesus that's preaching the good news, but he calls these 12 disciples, and he calls them to be with him. You say, okay, what does that mean to be with Jesus? Because they're also being sent out by Jesus. How can you be with him and also be sent out by him? Because for Jesus to be with him doesn't necessarily mean you have to be like in close proximity to him, but you got to be with him. You got to be tracking with him. You got to be all in. You got to be following Jesus. You got to get what he's come to do. And so Jesus wants these 12 disciples to be with him, to follow him. But then Mark does something brilliant. It's this like Old Testament sandwich he puts in from Mark chapter 4 to Mark chapter 8. Because in Mark chapter 4, he quotes from an Old Testament prophet that talks about people who will listen, but they won't hear. They will look, but they won't understand. And in Mark chapter 8, he quotes a different Old Testament prophet who talks about people who will look, but they won't see. And they will listen, but they won't understand. See, Mark's trying to set up this story here that Jesus is the king, and he wants his disciples to be with him. But there are some people who will look at Jesus, and because of the lenses they have in their life, they won't understand who he actually was. Some people will be close to Jesus, and they can listen to him, but they won't actually hear his message because they've come to Jesus with their own agenda. And there's just story after story. That's all we've done for like the last month is look at some of these stories from Mark chapter 4 to Mark chapter 8. Because there's two groups of people that we encounter. There's one group of people who get who Jesus is. That they see him and they instantly recognize him. And then there's another group of people who they're with Jesus, but they're not with Jesus. 
They're around him, but they don't understand who he is. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, okay, we're going to hear about a group of people who totally gets who Jesus is. That's going to be the disciples, right? Wrong. In fact, the stories that we see, the people who actually understand who Jesus is, it's people like the demon-possessed man. Jesus gets off a boat and there's a naked demon-possessed man. And remember we talked about in Jewish culture, if you were sinful, then you were unclean, which meant you couldn't worship God, you couldn't be around other people. And in fact, they thought your sinfulness and your uncleanliness was actually contagious and would infect other people. So when Jesus shows up and we see a naked demon-possessed man, do we think that he's clean or unclean? I know I was gone last week, but you guys can do better than that, okay? Is he clean or unclean? Unclean, right? That was the easy one. And when Jesus shows up, does the unclean man's sinfulness infect Jesus? No. Jesus' holiness cleanses that man. He drops to his knees in surrender. He instantly recognizes who Jesus is. Or what about Jairus, the leader of the synagogue? Remember, he knew that his fellow Jewish leaders were wanting to kill Jesus. But when Jairus' daughter was sick, he drops to his knees in worship and surrender and says, Jesus, I know that you can heal her. And yes, Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. But remember, at the same time, there was a woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years. And so she was unclean for 12 years, couldn't worship. 12 years, couldn't be around other people. 12 years told that God never wanted her around anyone. And yet she reaches out and touches Jesus because she believes he's the Messiah. And what happens? Instantly, she's healed. There's a story we didn't even get to about a Gentile woman. She's not even Jewish, who has a demon-possessed daughter. It's like checking every box on the unclean list right there. And Jesus even heals that woman's daughter. And so all these people who are unclean are the ones who recognize Jesus. But it's the disciples who don't seem to quite get it. Because the stories we get about them are where they're riding in a boat with Jesus. And then a storm kicks up and they think that they're about to die. And so they wake Jesus up. And he gets up and he just speaks and the storm stops and the waves calm. And what is the disciples' response? They say, who is this guy? And then last week we talked about a story many of you are probably familiar with. It's called the feeding of the 5,000. Because there were at least 5,000 men plus women and children. Jesus and his disciples had wanted to get away on their own fall break. They needed some rest. They needed to relax. And so they go to this secluded place. And while they're there, thousands of people show up to meet with Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but we have a rule. When I'm on vacation, I'm not a pastor, right? I'm just, I'm just a guy relaxing. But for Jesus, when he's there and he sees those people, it says his heart was moved with compassion because he saw these people were like sheep without a shepherd. And so he turns to the disciples. He says, you guys need to feed them. And the disciples look around and they're thinking, Jesus, are you crazy? How are we supposed to feed this many people? In fact, I say, you know what? It would take $80,000, $100,000. It would take a year's worth of work to try to feed these people. We can't do that. And so Jesus says, okay, you're giving me a lot of excuses here. You're telling me why you can't do what I've asked you to do. But what do you have? And they said, well, we have five loaves and we have two fish. And so they hand it to Jesus and he takes it. And he blesses it, and he breaks it, and he gives it back to the disciples and says, you pass this out. 
So they go around, 5,000 men plus women and children, they start passing food out. And what happens? Everybody gets food. In fact, it says everybody was full. That's a good meal when you're full at the end of the meal. And then there was still extra left over. Now, you'd think at this point, the disciples would get it, right? Because that's Mark chapter 6. Jesus feeds 5,000 people. But then I noticed what happens at the beginning of Mark chapter 8. Just two chapters later, let's look at this. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 1. It says, In those days there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat. And he called the disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, and some of them have come a long distance. Okay, so let's just recap in the story, okay, just so you can see. Two different stories here. Mark chapter 6, Jesus is in a solitary place. Thousands of people show up. He has compassion. He tells the disciples, you have to feed them. Mark chapter 8, Jesus is a solitary place. You got a big group of what we're going to find out later. 4,000 people show up. They're there for three days. It says Jesus has compassion on them, and Jesus wants his disciples to feed them. Now, the last time Jesus told his disciples to feed 5,000 people, Jesus performed a miracle. And so this time, we would think the disciples have surely learned their lesson, right? We've been through this before. It wasn't that long ago we saw Jesus do this before. But what is the disciples' response in verse 4? It said, his disciples answered him, where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place to feed these people? You're thinking, you have got to be kidding me, guys. We just went through this. I just fed 5,000 people with a few loaves and some fish. And now there's another large group and we need to feed them. And all you're doing is giving me the reasons that you can't be obedient. All you're doing is giving me all the reasons you don't have enough time. You don't have enough resources. You can't do this thing. You want to know what Jesus does? He is so patient and he is so gracious. Because if it was me, I'd be like, all right, get out of the way, right? Let, let, I'm done with you guys. But Jesus says, no, no, what do you have? He said, well, we have seven loaves, more loaves than the last time for less people. I'm thinking Jesus can handle it. And he takes the loaves and he blesses it and he breaks it and he hands it to the disciples and he says, pass it out and everyone eats till they're full and there's food left over. The same miracle two different times because the disciples, they, they don't get it. They don't understand. See, these stories aren't in here. Mark didn't give these stories so we could see, man, look at all the miracles that Jesus could work. Yes, that's part of it. The reason they're here is to say, hey, look at how dumb the disciples are. God did the same thing twice and they still didn't get it. I had a professor in college though that told me that every time I read in scripture a story and I think, man, that person's dumb, that's probably the person that I'm most like. And so I look at this, and I think that's exactly what Mark wants us to realize is, don't we all do the same thing? God shows up time and time and time again, and yet when he shows up, we're so quick to give our excuses. Has God ever called you to do something? And you said, well, I, I don't know if I'm smart enough to do that. Oh, that's going to cost me financially. I can't do that. Oh, I don't have the time right now. We, give, we always give God all the reasons we can't do it. It's kind of like what our kids do to us, right? You ask them to do something, they tell you all the things they can't do. I wonder if sometimes God's like, listen, I've, I've done it before with less. I think if you just give me what you have, we can do great things. 
So I've experienced this in my own life. If you've been at Bridgepoint for some time, you've heard me share these stories before, but I think enough of you are new that this would be just a good picture from where we've been here over the last few years. See, I started at Bridgepoint just over six years ago, and when I became the lead pastor, we had about $40,000 of debt, and we were, uh, we were about a month, sometimes two, behind on some bills. And you know what happens when you get two months behind, they start shutting things off, and we hadn't paid rent or payroll on time in a year and a half. And so I kind of sit down, and we're assessing the situation, and I'm a math major in college. So I did what every good math major would do. And I pulled out a spreadsheet, right? Because we can figure this out. It's just numbers. We can figure it out. And so I remember I had like 18 different tabs and we're moving money over here. And let's, what if we cut from here and move money from here and there? I remember looking at it like 28 different ways. And I came to the conclusion that um, it was impossible. Like we could cut everything. I mean, imagine like you, you haven't paid your bills on time in so long. You've got a bunch of debt. You know, the only way you can catch up is, is something big's got to happen. And so I remember sat down at one of our very first elder meetings and just explaining the situation, kind of like, I don't know what to do. I mean, this is, we don't have enough. There's not enough to go around. And I'll never forget one of our elders at the time, his name was Peter Newman, and he's since gone on to be with the Lord. But I remember he looked at me and he said, Matt, don't worry about it. This is not your problem. It's God's problem. And I did what every good pastor would do. And I said, Peter, I don't need to hear that right now. Okay, like I get it, God's problem. But no, you've seen the numbers. We don't have enough. And he's like, Matt, it, it's God's problem. And so we made a commitment that night as elders. We were going to surrender this to God. We were not going to take the burden. We weren't going to solve this on our own. And so in September, we had a meeting with church. We had a family meeting and just kind of laid out, here's the situation. And by this church's generosity and God's grace, we got to December and we had caught up on all our bills. We started paying rent and payroll on time. And we were $2,000 away from getting all of our debt paid off. And so it's the last week of December, and I wanted to pay off our debt by the end of the year so bad. And I came in the office, and every Christmas Eve, we do a special Christmas Eve offering. And we had $2,000 of debt, and guess how much came in at the Christmas Eve offering? It was $2,000, and I was so excited, except that the Christmas Eve offering isn't for debt. It's for missions. So I remember sitting in our financial director's office, and I'm thinking, okay, but God, what if we pay off the debt? Then we're debt-free. Think about all the missions we could do. And I'm kind of having this conversation in the back of my mind. I just heard Peter's voice. It's, it's God's problem. And so I say, you know, just pay the missions. And I went and pouted in my office. And our financial director a little while later went down to check the mail and came back. And she said, you'll never guess. We just got a check in the mail for the exact amount of the debt that we owe. And I said, well, quick, put it in the bank before something happens. And since that point, we continue to operate debt-free. We're not behind on anything. I mean, just a testament to God's faithfulness here at Bridgepoint. But then I want to flash forward four years to 2019. Because we had been so tight financially, we had to structure some things to make sure that we had made it. And so um, in the last building we were in, it was a great building. I mean, we had a ton of space, probably more space than even we needed. But when you have a ton of space, you have a ton of rent as well. And because we had been so tight a few years earlier, the lease was backloaded so that every few months our rent was going up $1,000 a month. And so I see this coming like, I, it's almost like watching a train wreck. Like I can see where this is headed and it's not going to be good. And 
And so I'm, I'm doing what, what I learned my lesson the last time. So I sat down and pulled out a spreadsheet. And I said, we're going to figure this out. And so I'm looking at the budget, and we're moving money around, and we're trying, well, you can cut this and that. And so I called an elder meeting, and guys, here we are. We're looking at this situation. I don't know how we're going to make things work. And I remember being convicted and feeling like, and, and maybe this is, people say God told them to do a whole lot of stuff. That's not what I'm trying to say. Maybe it was just dinner I had the night before. But I felt like God told me, Matt, when you're ready to surrender this and let it be my problem, I'll take care of it. And so I had to make the decision, we're going to surrender this to God. Less than a week later, my wife was at a Wendy's on a Sunday afternoon, which is a miracle in and of itself, because we go to Mexican on Sunday afternoons. We don't go to Wendy's. And while she's there, she overhears a conversation about a church moving to a new facility. And so I reached out to the pastor of that church the next day. And long story short, we ended up in this building where we save $84,000 a year from our last facility. And so we're in a stronger financial position now than we've ever been. And I say that not to say, man, what a great financial expert Matt is, because that is not the point of the story. The point of the story is I know what it's like to be these disciples. And to feel like God is telling you to surrender something and all you can look at is say, well, I don't have this. And I wonder if some of you are missing out on what God wants to do through you because you're not willing to trust him with what you have. See, this is how awesome Jesus is. He performed the miracle whether the disciples were faithful or not. So here's the thing. We can see God perform a miracle because of our faithfulness or despite of our faithfulness. He's going to build his church. He's going to bring his kingdom. He's going to do those things. Do you want to be a part of it? And it's this constant invitation of just surrender what you have. Just surrender your time. Surrender your finances. Surrender and trust me to do what I do best. Now, shortly after this, there's a story of Mark chapter 8 of Jesus healing a blind man. And it's one of my favorite healing stories because it's super strange. It says that Jesus goes up to this blind man and he spits in his eyes and puts his hand on him. And I'm like, that's a weird flex, Jesus, but okay. And then Jesus says, all right, what do you see? He says, well, I can kind of see things like it looks like men walking around, but they're trees. I'm like, oh, Jesus has bad days too, right? And you're not, not firing on all cylinders. And so Jesus puts his hand on him again. And then he says, what do you see now? And he said, I can see everything clearly. So growing up, I thought it was the story of Jesus having a bad day. But actually what Jesus was doing is he was healing this man's blindness in two phases. Because up till this point, his disciples, even though they were close to Jesus, they weren't with him. They had the wrong lens. They needed to be healed of their blindness. And it happens in two phases. Are we tracking? Look at Mark chapter 8, verse 27. It says, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the road, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. So you got to get this picture. 
Jesus is in a very specific region. We can't go in right now. I don't have the time to talk about why that's important. But he turns to his disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? Oh, well, some of them say you're like Elijah or John the Baptist. Some of them say you're like a prophet. Everybody's got a lens. Everybody has these ideas about who Jesus is. But then Jesus turns to them and says, but who do you say that I am? By the way, that's the most important question we can answer. Because one day when we stand before Jesus, he's not going to ask, who did your spouse say that I was? Who did your pastor say that I was? Who did your parents say that I was? He's going to ask you, who do you say that I am? And Peter here, Peter nails it. He says, you are the Messiah. It's like the first step of healing that blindness. He gets, he's like, okay, Jesus, you are the Messiah. And Jesus says, you've got it. Now don't tell anyone because I actually have to explain to you what that means because you don't even fully know what it means for me to be the Messiah. So in verse 31, Jesus then begins to teach them that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. And he spoke openly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, there's a lot going on in these verses. Now, Peter knows Jesus is the Messiah, but Jesus knows his blindness isn't quite healed yet. And so he starts to tell them, you're right. And because of that, it is necessary. I have to travel to Jerusalem and be rejected by the religious leaders. I'm going to be killed, and after three days, I'm going to rise again. It says he spoke openly to them. If you actually translate from the original Greek, it says he spoke plainly, right? There's no parables. There's no illustrations. He's literally just telling them what is supposed to happen. And Peter hears this. He says, hey, um, Jesus, come over here for a second. Can I talk to you in private? And he pulls him over and he starts to rebuke Jesus. I mean, God bless him for his confidence. So that's pretty bold to start rebuking Jesus. He's over there, Jesus. I just said you were the Messiah. Messiahs don't die. Messiahs kill people. Messiahs don't lay down their lives. Messiahs overthrow other leaders. Messiahs are people who come in and and they conquer. And you're supposed to reestablish Israel. You're supposed to reestablish the kingdom of God. You're supposed to do all this. And you know what the best part's going to be, Jesus? That when you do that, I'd love a spot in your cabinet. I'd love it. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be like secretary of defense or anything like that. Maybe like just HUD or whatever. Oh, I'm fine with anything. But Jesus, you're supposed to do that. And then I'm supposed to gain power and prominence and fame. That is my reward for being faithful to you, Jesus. Because see, Peter still had his lens on of what he wanted Jesus to be, of how Jesus was supposed to help him. And Jesus responds to Peter in some of the harshest language we see Jesus give in Scripture. Verse 33, but turning around and looking at his disciples. I love that too, by the way. Peter pulls him aside in private. It's like Jesus invites the other disciples in on this conversation. And he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about God's concerns, but humans' concerns. You don't have to be a theologian to know that if Jesus calls you Satan... You done messed up. Not a good thing. Because the thing about Satan is, 
He's fine if Jesus is the Messiah, just not a Messiah that dies on the cross. That was the temptation in the desert. Sure, Jesus, have all the power you want. Get all the fame and all the glory, but don't go to the cross. And here, Jesus is saying, Peter, you're looking at me through a lens that's shaped by the world. You're more concerned about your agenda than God's agenda. And I wonder if when some of us encounter frustrations with Jesus, it's because he didn't do what we wanted him to do. Oh, Jesus, well, I'll follow you if you fix my marriage. I'll follow you if you heal me. I'll follow you if you bless me financially. As long as there's something in it for me, Jesus, that's what we're supposed to do. But the moment Jesus starts talking about dying, laying down our lives, we say, whoa, wait a second, Jesus. In fact, Jesus goes on to explain this in the next verse. Says, calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. This teaching right here is where everything hinges in the gospel of Mark. Because up to this point, you have Jesus has announced that he is the king and he's bringing his kingdom. And there's some people who get it and there's some people who don't. The disciples needed their blindness healed. They needed their lenses removed. And it came in two parts. The first part is, who do you say that I am? You're the Messiah. That's right. You kind of get it. But here's what the Messiah looks like. He lays down his life. And if you want to get behind me, see, I always thought Jesus was saying, Peter, get out of the way. Get off the bus. Get behind me. No, he's saying, follow behind me. You don't lead me. You don't get in front of me. Don't go out before Jesus. Follow behind him. And what does it look like to follow Jesus? It means you pick up your cross every day. You lay down your life. And see, this is where I think churches have done a disservice over the years. Because we talk about the cross like it was a place where something happened. Like it was a place that Jesus went. And he died so that I don't have to. But one day I get to be with him. And, and yes, it was a place. But for Jesus, the cross wasn't a place. It was a lifestyle. See, Jesus was setting the example for all of us. That if you want to follow Jesus then we have to be willing to die to our hopes, our dreams, the things that we want. We have to put Jesus' agenda above our own. It's a weird thing to talk about dying. I want to just imagine for a moment that you have a friend who invites you to hang out. They've got this group that's meeting together on Saturday night. And so you kind of walk in. There's a room kind of like this. And as soon as you walk in, you notice that there's an electric chair in the middle of the room. And at that point, we got some red flags going off in our heads, but then imagine they all gather around, they start singing songs about the electric chair. And then they share a meal together and they remember somebody who died in an electric chair and how we need to die in an electric chair too. That's kind of weird, right? But you know, the cross was the electric chair of the first century. It was an instrument of death. 
And like sometimes we sanitize it so we have nice ornate crosses on our walls and we can stick one on our bumper sticker and we can wear one around our neck. But the call of the cross is the call to come and die. To say, you know what? It's not my career goals and ambitions anymore. It's about what Jesus wants to do. It's not about what I want to do financially. It's about what Jesus is calling me to do. And I wonder if maybe there are some of us here today and Jesus is calling us to surrender some things. Maybe for you, it's a job that he's calling you to quit and surrender that to follow him. Maybe for you, it's your kids that you need to surrender and say, God, I'm going to stop idolizing them and I'm going to trust you with them so you can follow him. Maybe it's a dream school college, career, and Jesus is saying, you got to give that up to come follow me. And I actually think that this is so challenging to us because I think we wear the same lens that Peter wore. Peter wore the lens that the Messiah was going to come back and make Israel great again, that the Messiah was going to come back and fix their problems and establish them in high places and put them overseeing other nations, and it was going to be great. And to hear that what Jesus was actually going to do is die, it didn't make any sense to him. I've been preaching for several years now, and I can preach on pretty much any topic, and you guys will roll with me, and I love that about you. But I can guarantee that when I preach this, this is the only time that I get emails, conversations, or people get heated. Because the reality is, what Jesus is saying is, following Jesus means it's not about your individual rights. It's not about what you deserve to do. He's calling you to lay down everything for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of others. See, we've perverted the gospel to make it about me. Jesus died for me so that I could fulfill my purpose and I could be blessed and I could have my best life ever. If the gospel's about us, it's no gospel at all. It's always about Jesus. It's about his kingdom. And by the way, I'm talking to myself right now. I'm talking about laying down my goals, ambitions, aspirations for my life. Because at the end of the day, when I stand before Jesus, I don't want to present him a bunch of things I did. I just want to give him what I have and say, you do with it what you will. This is the turning point because from here on out, Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. He's headed for this confrontation. He's headed for the cross. And here he said, your whole life ought to be centered around the cross. Now what that looks like, his disciples are going to discover over the next few chapters and over the next few weeks. We're going to dive into that even more. But this morning, I'd love for us to take a moment and we're going to end our time together like we do every week with a time of communion. And I know a lot of times when we take the body and the blood of Jesus, we thank Jesus for what he did for us. And we should do that. I'm not minimizing that at all. But this morning, may we be reminded in the same way that Jesus gave up his life, he's called us to give up our lives. And as you take the body and the blood of Jesus, ask yourself, what does it mean to live a cross-centered life? What does it look like for me to die? For me to truly follow Jesus, for some of you, it's to give up pride. 
For some of you, it's to surrender your wounds to Jesus. For some of you, it might be something more tangible, like a job, a house, a car, or finances. I don't know what it looks like, but I know the call to follow Jesus is a costly one, and it's uncomfortable. That's why we named the series Uncomfortable. But it's worth it, because when we do that, we get to see God's kingdom grow because of our faithfulness, not despite it. Just bow your heads and close your eyes with me all across this room. God, we're just so thankful. We're thankful for your grace and your patience. We're thankful that even when we don't get it the first time or the second time or the tenth time, that you don't give up on us. And I pray right now in this moment, you would begin to move. And we just pray that your Holy Spirit would just point out the things in our life that we need to surrender. Point out areas that we've been holding on to. Areas that we've prioritized over you. God, give us strength to live a cross-centered life. And I pray that as we leave this place, you would use us to grow your kingdom. It's about you, Jesus. Not about us. Not about our kingdom. Not about our desires. But it's all about you. Jesus, we love you so much. It's in your name I pray. Amen. As you feel led, you can take communion. Thanks for listening to the Bridgepoint Church Podcast. I hope we've shared something meaningful for you wherever you're at in your spiritual journey. Just so you know a little bit more about us, we meet on Sunday mornings in downtown Woodstock, but we also meet during the week in what we call life groups, and that's where the really good stuff happens for us. If you're becoming a regular listener of this podcast, we'd like to invite you to make it relational, just like we do during the week. Grab a Bible, invite some friends to join you, and turn this into a conversation. If you're already a regular listener and would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by visiting us online at bpc.life and choosing the giving option that works best for you. Thanks again for listening.